0: read some verses in Mark chapter 1 first chapter of Mark This gospel beginning at verse 1 the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ the Son of God, even as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, who shall prepare thy way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ye ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John came, who baptized in the wilderness, and preached the baptism of repentance unto remission of sin. And there went out unto him all the country of Judea, and all they of Jerusalem. And they were baptized of him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair, and had a leathern girdle about his his loins, and did eat locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, there cometh after me he that is mightier than I, the latchet of whose shoes I am not worthy to stoop down and loose, and unloose. I baptised you in water, but he shall baptise you in the Holy Spirit. And it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptised of John in the Jordan. And straightway coming up out of the water... He saw the heavens rent asunder, and the Spirit as a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And straightway the Spirit driveth him forth into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, tempted of Satan. And he was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered unto him now after John was delivered up Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand repent ye and believe in the gospel well now this evening I'm quite sure really by the um, arrangement of the lord uh we come uh to the last part of this first uh section of the gospel according to mark which i have entitled the servant of the lord presented the first 13 verses of the gospel according to mark i had i had um uh, been well assured in my own heart that we would cover that last week but for some reason or another we never got beyond the third of those subdivisions which is the herald of the Lord's servant from verse 4 to 8 I'm quite sure now as I've come back to the study that it was right we found this again and again Um, so tonight we come to the next of the subdivisions the fourth, the baptism and anointing of the Lord's servant from verse 9 to 11 now on your chair you will have found the notes of um, uh, last week's um, uh, study so I'm not going to go over it at all tonight but go straight on otherwise we won't get this completed Um, such a lot of very real importance in this now in these verses from verse 9 to verse 11 in these few verses we have two tremendously significant matters firstly we have the baptism of christ and secondly resulting from that baptism we have his anointing for service we cannot overestimate uh, We we cannot overestimate what we learn about service from these two matters. Now I cannot underline that enough. I think that many people overlook the baptism and anointing of Christ. But perhaps in the whole gospel apart from his birth, There are no two more significant incidents, factors, in his earthly life than his baptism and anointing. Not only can we not overestimate what we learn about the service of Christ from these two things, but we cannot overestimate what we learn about God's service into which he would call you and me from these two matters. In all divine service, there are two essential factors, the cross and the spirit. Now, it doesn't matter how you look at it, you cannot get away from these two essential factors in all divine service. Wherever there is a breakdown in divine service in the whole of the Bible, it goes back to the failure in one or other of these two matters, the cross of the Spirit. And furthermore, you cannot make do with only one of the factors there are those who would make a lot of the spirit without the cross there are those who would make a lot of the cross without the spirit but for divine service the two factors are absolutely essential indeed we could say here is a divine marriage And as we say in our marriage service, those whom God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. The cross is an integral part of the Holy Spirit's ministry. And the Holy Spirit is an integral factor in knowing anything about the cross. Therefore, if a person talks about the cross and talks and talks about the cross but has no vital, living, practical experience of the Holy Spirit, we have to come to the conclusion that it is theoretical and God only knows how much talk about the cross is Theoretical. it's just so much theological knowledge now we can all talk about being crucified we can all talk about going the way of the cross we can all talk about denying ourselves we can talk and talk and talk about it it doesn't mean anything and if there is no vital experience of the Holy Spirit initially and progressively then all the talk about the cross in the world is, to, uh, is of no value whatsoever On the other hand, we must say this, just as forcefully, that where we find talk and talk and talk and talk about the Holy Spirit and no essential experience of the cross in its fullness, there is all the terrible danger of mixture and counterfeit. That which is superficial and spurious, merely the soul in all its genius for imitating the spirit now when it comes to the matter the soul and the spirit where they come near to each other are very alike only God by his word can divide between soul and spirit no human being of himself or herself can distinguish between what is spirit and what is soul in their own experience that's why talk about the Holy Spirit so called experience of the Holy Spirit if they do not if they are not wedded with an experience of the cross so quickly get out of hand and run over into what is counterfeit mixed or spurious then the soul comes up takes over and what began in the spirit ends in the flesh this is church history these two matters therefore are absolutely essential and here we have them in these first verses of the mark's gospel together they are vital and necessary constituents in all true service now it is certainly not without very real and great significance that the moment Mark chooses to introduce Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee in verse 9 the moment he chooses to introduce Jesus in his record In verse 9, as Jesus, then came Jesus uh, from Nazareth of Galilee without any of the preliminaries concerning his history and his earthly life which we have in all other Gospels the other three Gospels particularly Matthew and Luke it surely is not without great significance at the moment he chooses to introduce Jesus he faces us immediately with these two factors, the cross and the spirit, his baptism and his anointing. Now that is even more significant when we realize that this gospel is presenting to us Christ as the servant of the Lord. We dispense with the story of his birth, we dispense with the long pedigree, we dispense with so much else that we find in both Luke and Matthew and John, all the prologue in John. We dispense with that. And no sooner, almost as have we started, within a few verses, than Mark faces us with these two essential constituents in divine service: his baptism and his anointing, the cross and the spirit. Well, now, uh, we'll look. A little more carefully at it. If you look at verse 9, we have his baptism. Let's look at this matter. In verse 9, and it came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized of John in the Jordan. Now, of course, this baptism of the lord jesus Christ, christ's baptism that he that the lord jesus christ went through was not anything to do with repentance nor was it to do with remission of sins i think you all know i hardly need to say it he did not need either to repent neither did he need forgiveness or remission of sins his baptism was Christ's acceptance of the principle of the cross, long before he came to Calvary. When he went down into those waters, as someone who was without sin, without sin, when he went down into those waters, it was not a baptism for, of repentance. It wasn't a baptism preparing him for forgiveness of sins which was to come. He went down into those waters to identify himself with his Father's saving purpose. And to identify himself with you and me as sinners who are in an absolutely helpless and impossible condition so long before he came to Calvary the Lord Jesus Christ in his baptism accepted the principle of the cross in other words it wasn't just that at the end of his earthly life he was going to die on the cross but he accepted that cross and all that it meant as the basis for his whole ministry as the basis of his of all his service You cannot understand the baptism of Jesus Christ or the anointing unless you get hold of that fact. The sinless Son of God as the servant of the Lord accepted as the basis of his divine service and work the principle of the cross if he accepted that principle with a self without sin how much more ought you and i now i have said that he identified himself wholly with us in our need and helplessness and with his father in his saving purpose So at the very beginning of his service, it is in verse 14 as we read together that we have the start of the Lord's service as such, his work, his ministry as such. But at the very beginning of his service and ministry, he denied himself, took up his cross and followed his father. Now doesn't that make what he said about us denying ourselves, taking up our crosses and following after him? Doesn't that give it an altogether different light? At the very beginning of his service, he denied himself, took up his cross and followed his father. We must never forget that Christ does not ask us to do something or be something which he has not himself more fully and deeply done or been. Have you got hold of that? We've all got the idea that the Lord Jesus Christ asks us to do things which he himself knows very little about. Very much like the attitude of employee to employer today. You don't know. Why you ask me to do this or do that? You've never done it. You don't know what it's like to be one of the poor working class, the proletariat. But this uh, this attitude has come into our whole attitude towards the Lord Jesus Christ. Again and again, deep down the heart, there's resentment. Resentment. Why should he ask me to leave everything? Why should he call upon me to deny myself? Why should I give up all rights to myself? Why, why, why? and the idea behind it so often is although we accept the fact that he left his father's glory we we feel somehow in our hearts it was easy for him he could somehow do it in a facile way an easy way a a sort of um, a way that was not really costly but this is a very big point with God he never asks us to do something which he himself has not already done now you go away and think about that he never asks us to make a sacrifice that he has not far more deeply and more terribly made himself he never asks us to lay aside our reputation that he himself has had no experience of he never asks us to give up right to ourselves that he himself does not know now if you take your bible I can just give you a few instances confining ourselves to Mark's gospel for instance if you look at Mark chapter 10 and verse 29 Jesus said that Uh, by the way you have to understand the verses before really because Peter had just said how impossible it is for anyone to be saved and God said with man it is uh, impossible but all things are possible with God and Peter then said um, began to say we've left all and followed you in other words he got hold of the fact what it was in following the Lord there was a cost now Jesus said Verily I say unto you there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel's sake but he shall receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brethren, sisters mothers, children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life many that are first shall be last and the last shall be first now the Lord Jesus never a- is never asking us to follow him in a way that he has himself not gone he gave up his father's home he gave up an equality with God. He didn't think of it as a thing to be grasped at. We think of houses, homes, mother, father, children. If you think of the Lord Jesus on the cross, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All given up for us. You look at verse, uh, chapter nine, verse thirty-five. He sat down and called the twelve, and he said unto them, If any man would be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all, or slave of all, as you'll find in your modern versions. And he took a little child and set him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such little children in my name receiveth me, and whosoever receiveth me receiveth not me but him that sent me now the lord jesus wasn't just asking us to do something that was terribly difficult and and uh, hard for us fraught with cost and suffering the fact is this didn't the lord jesus himself become last of all born in nazareth born uh, not even in a in, in an inn but in a little cattle to uh, and so on he never, he never he's last of all carpenter of nazareth shall any good thing come out of nazareth last of all and slave of all this gospel is just filled with the account of him being at the beck and call of all and sundry good and bad slave of all and does he not know what it is to become like a little child he who is omnipotent and omniscient and omnipresent contracted to the span of flesh and blood a little babe born at Bethlehem he doesn't ask anything of us that he himself has not first gone through this has helped me again and again in my own life circumstances and situation when I realize that God has not got no understanding of the condition in which I find myself again and again however trying the sense however limited they are however restrictive however frustrating the fact is he who was God became dependent on a woman had to be moved, had to be fed, had to be cared for. It is extraordinary. Take chapter 8 and verse 34. Chapter 8, verse 34. He called unto him the multitude with his disciples and said unto them, if any man would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. The Lord Jesus doesn't ask anything of us that he himself does not know. Not only at Calvary itself, but long before, denying himself. Or as Phillips and some of the others say, gave up right to himself. If there was someone who's given up rights to himself, who had more than any one of us in this room rights, true rights, based on, on, on an intrinsic purity and worthiness. It was Jesus Christ, but he gave them up. He denied himself. He, gave up his, he took up his cross. He followed God. He didn't even do the, his own works. He said, the works that I do, they are the works of my Father. But they're not my words, they're my Father's words. And so on and, and so on. You've got it all. He speaks of our, of our losing our life that we might find it. Who first lost his life that he might find it? For he says, for whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospel's, the same shall find it. But he doesn't ask us to go through any bigger sacrifice than he himself has gone through. He knows what he's talking about. And this is the whole point. That the service of God is never going to be administered and never going to be um, fulfilled by men and women who've been bulldozed into it as if God's got to get behind us with dynamite and blow us into his service. He doesn't want such service. This is the whole point of this gospel beginning with God the Son. Service, the kind of service God wants, is the service that comes from sonship, uh, a relationship with God which, which willingly, readily offers itself up gives up its rights, and becomes servant of all. Now, that's a high standard, but it's a great comfort to me to know that the Lord Jesus knows all about it. God is not asking us to do something that he has no knowledge of and no experience of. In Christ, he knows what he's talking about. Let me put it reverently. I put it rather irreverently, but I would like to try and put it reverently. You understand god doesn't say now look here you 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 give this up you give that up you give the other up one day you're going to sit on a throne and i'm going to bulldoze you into it uh no not at all this is this is just the wonder of it if we suffer with him we shall reign with him if you won't lose your salvation you won't lose your salvation God just doesn't want the guy. He says, no, I'm, I'm the servant. I'll save you and I'll keep you to the end, even if you're the most selfish Christian in the whole world. I love you so much. I'll keep you. But if you want to reign, if you want to be in my service, if you want to administer the kingdom, you must know what it is to suffer. If you're prepared for that, if you're prepared for the cross, if you're prepared for the fire, if you're prepared for the breaking, if you're prepared for the denying of yourself, if you're prepared to give up rights to yourself, if you're prepared to lose your life for my sake and the Gospels, then, in the end, you will come into great glory. This is because, you see, God will not suffer anyone who has not got the same character as he. Not going to have his service adulterated, neither now nor in eternity. And a lot of what we call service today, God doesn't even own it by that title. He just doesn't call it service. Well, now, there is, I think, a very big point. Christ, God, Christ is only asking us to follow in the way he himself has taught. And that's why when we come to next week's study we shall find that follow is one of the big words of the next section. He only asks us to follow in a path which he himself has trod. He says follow me, follow me. I have given up this, I have given up right, I have denied myself I have my cross it is a very very interesting fact that in Mark 8 verse 34, I just say this in passing, it is so interesting that the Lord Jesus didn't say that we have to, den- to deny ourselves take up the cross and follow me but he said take up his cross And it seems to me that in every one of our lives, the cross is made personal. Now, of course, in some of those old Victorian hymns, they speak about crosses that we have to bear. And I often can't help shuddering a bit on that, because it has reduced the whole thought of the Lord. It's devalued the coinage of God in this matter. And made it something far less than, I mean, aches and pains aren't crosses. Poor conditions aren't necessarily crosses. It comes to all in the world, saved and unsaved. But when he says take up his cross, his cross meant the giving up of all rights, the laying down of one's life, the laying aside of glory, of reputation, of everything else. That's what it meant. and then it's made personal to you, only God knows what would be his cross in my life would not necessarily be his cross in your life. That's the point. you see what I'm getting at? It's made personal in our own day, so it's his cross, your cross, my cross, and yet it's his cross, the Lord's cross. Well, I, I, I say that in passing. Well, now there's the baptism. There's the baptism for you. His. Baptism. in that he stepped down into those waters though he was without sin he stepped down into those waters not because he needed to repent not because he needed forgiveness of sins but in order publicly to accept before heaven and earth and hell the task which God had given him that is he accepted the cross in those waters. Now we come in verse 10 and verse 11 of this uh, uh, first chapter of Mark to the anointing. I will just read the, the two verses. And straightway, coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens rent asunder and the spirit as a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens, Thou art my beloved son, in thee I am well pleased. Now, here we have the anointing. This is the positive side of the baptism. The baptism is the negative side, it wants. Here's the Here's the positive side, the anointing. You can hardly divide these two things. They're, they're like Siamese twins. They belong to each other. Immediately Christ committed himself to God's purpose and way of salvation, giving up all right to himself, And identified himself with man in his helplessness and need. God anointed him. Just at that point. God gave himself to such selfless and sacrificial service. Now what is an anointing? you ever thought about it? The anointing is God's committal. Not God's salvation, God's committal. That's why uh, the anointing doesn't come easily. It's God's committal to a man or a woman or to a people. It's the anointing. Now, whenever you go through the Old Testament, you find whenever there's anointing, that man, God's committed. God's committed. When it's a true anointing, not just a ceremony. Now, we have to note one or two things about this anointing. First of all, Christ was born of the Spirit already. He was born of the Spirit. His very coming into this world, his very humanity, was the product of the mighty work of the Holy Spirit. Furthermore, in all the hidden 30 years at Nazareth, the Holy Spirit was in him. Never think that the Lord Jesus was bereft of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was in him in all those 30 years in Nazareth. And that carpenter's shop was the scene of a new kind of man working in an ordinary way, in ordinary circumstances, in all the routine of life. So never think when the Lord Jesus calls you to a routine job, and a routine job, a a routine job in routine type circumstances, humdrum surroundings and so on, that he's calling you to something he doesn't know anything about. The Lord Jesus only lived on this earth 33 years, and for at least something like we would say, well, it would have been about 20 years, 20 years. He knew only a humdrum job with with routine conditions in a very, very ordinary little place. So again, don't think that when God says about doing a job well as unto him that he doesn't know anything about it. He doesn't know the circumstances I put up with. He doesn't know the difficulties I've got the Lord knows all about it he spent the largest part of his life in just that kind of circumstance there again there's something for you but still we're not talking about that we're talking about the anointing now the Holy Spirit was in him in those 30 years so don't get away with the idea that he was bereft of the Holy Spirit he was not only born of the Holy Spirit but the Holy Spirit was in him this coming of the Holy Spirit upon him was God's committing of himself in an altogether new way to him let me put it this way it was something new, it was something further this coming of the Holy Spirit upon him it was not being born of the Spirit and it wasn't just being indwelt by the Spirit it was something more, it's what we call the anointing God endued him with power for service. And don't let any single person in this room go away with the idea that the Lord Jesus could have fulfilled the service he had acceptably to God, but for that anointing. And nor can you. Or me. I think we ought also to note that we shall never know that anointing for service if we are not practically committed to God's purpose, whatever the cost. The thing God looks for before he anoints a man or a woman is whether they are absolutely committed to his purpose. Now listen, my dear, dear child of God, there are so many Christians today who are running all over the place, if you know what I mean, with Jesus in them. They've got the Lord inside of them, but they want to take him where they want. That's what they call service. I'll go here, I'll go there, I'll go over here. They want to take him with, with them. But that's not real So God will never anoint that kind of so-called service. The anointing that God gives is to a person, a man or a woman that is committed, lock, stock and barrel to his purpose, whatever the cost, and whatever the way. And God will often not tell you what the way is deliberately, to find out what's in the heart. Are you really prepared for this? Are you really prepared for everything? So therefore, so often it depends on little sudden, those little issues in your lives that you think, well, what does it matter about? Everything depends on that, because God's saying, if they can't get through on that, they can get through on nothing. People talk in high-polluting terms about serving the Lord, going here, going there, doing this, becoming mighty preachers, workers of miracles and all the rest of it. We've all got these ideas deep down within us, as in every person, deep down within them, and there is a hankering after greatness, some kind or another the old self unless we have given up the right to ourselves and that's it becoming his servants willingly and are genuinely identified with others in their need there can be no anointing No anointing at all. The principle is the same for us as it was for Christ. In other words, if the Lord Jesus had stepped back and said, well, surely there could be something for me. Surely I'm ready to go to Calvary. I'm ready to go to Calvary at the end of three years. But surely there could be just a little bit of mollification. Just a little bit of alleviation. there would have been no Calvary the devil would have seen to that so it is with you and I have you had the anointing do you know what it is for service if you had not had it I tell you why it is because somewhere there is not a basic giving up the right to yourself the rights your rights you get give those up you become willingly a servant of his now when I say a servant I mean what he calls a servant and you and I become genuinely involved with people identified with them in their deed then there is the unity. Now, there are three things about this anointing, we see, which may help us to understand a little more what really this word anointing, really, well, what it, it means. First of all, there is, I'll tell you first of all of the three things that I, 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 I'm going to just dwell on. The first is an opened heaven. The second is the Holy Spirit descending as a dove. And the third is the voice of God. Now the first is an opened heaven. We've had that in verse 10. Straightway coming up out of the water he saw the heavens rent asunder. Now this is much more significant than most Christians realize. <coughs> heaven had been closed. After all why on earth did God go in for these fireworks? Point in splitting open the heavens in a kind of mighty dramatic exhibition God doesn't go in for things like that just for the sake of it what, what, what was the idea behind it the, the point is this heaven has been had been closed to man since the fall of Adam and Eve you have got that in Genesis chapter 3 verse 22 to 24 heaven from that day was closed it was of course symbolized later in the veil of the temple the veil of the tabernacle, the veil of the temple closed, barred shut it had never been opened in the whole history of man not for one single point at one single point the whole history of man from the fall had heaven had heaven been opened now it was rent asunder that's how the revised version and the american standard version put it your authorized version says opened your revised standard version has gone back to the authorized version and said opened J.B. Phillips puts it like this, split open, split open. The New English Bible and the Amplified put it like this, torn open. But the whole idea is of something dramatic and almost explosive, certainly forceful, like a garment being taken and rent. straightway the moment he was baptized, the moment he went under the water and came up out of the water, that moment as he came up out of the water the heavens were torn open now John the Baptist saw this so it wasn't just that it may have been it may be that others didn't see it John the Baptist saw it, Jesus saw it, whether others saw it we don't know but John says I saw heaven torn open Well now then, what does it all mean? For the first time since the fall, heaven opened upon a man. For the first time since the fall in the whole history of mankind, heaven opened upon a man. It could do no other. For the first time there was a kind of man that heaven could open to. Now get this clear, heaven hadn't been in a kind of sulk, I think some Christians sort of think that that after the fall, heaven sulked, you know, and went off in, in high dudgeon. Sort of said, we're not going to open to that lot. Horrible crowd, you know, fallen, vile, filthy, depraved. We don't want to open to that lot. Not at all. If there had been one man, one man, not of the earth, but from heaven, heaven would have opened if there had been one man that was a different kind of man but heaven couldn't open to the kind of men that it saw they were alien they belonged to another um, sphere another realm they'd become satanized heaven just couldn't open to much as heaven would love to it couldn't it was alien you got it? But when Jesus came, thirty years of age, and went down into the waters of, of baptism, for the first time heaven found proof, not only of a man who was born of the Spirit and indwelt by the Spirit, but for the first time a man who gave practical proof that he was giving up his life. This was the kind of man that heaven could open to. So that moment, heaven was torn open, and I love the word, because the idea is almost as if heaven had been heaving backwards and forwards, because I'm rather perhaps a bit imaginative. (laughs) But I, I like to think of it that heaven was sort of heaving backwards and forwards all through the centuries of time, just sort of, oh, if we could only open. But there's not one of them. Enoch got near to it. But it didn't open to him. I think he was sucked into it somehow, you know. Same with Elijah, really. Didn't open to them. But uh, but uh, but it seems to me as if soon as this point came, when a man, a man, a man as much a man as you and me, a man went down into those waters, another kind of man, a man from heaven, the second man from heaven, the Lord from heaven. When that man went into those waters and gave up right to himself, who had perfect right to himself, more so than any other human being who had lived. When that happened, it was just as if the old heaving heaven just split open and said, we've got him. <laughs> we've got the man at last. It was open. Here then, for the first time in human history, was someone who had an opened heaven above him. You look at John chapter 1 and verse 51 and see what it says. John chapter 1 and verse 51. And Jesus saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Ye shall see the heaven opened. And the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. He said, I am like the ladder, I am like the staircase. I am like the way from heaven to earth and earth to heaven. You shall see the messengers of God, the servants of God, going up and down on this ladder. Angels, same word as messengers or servants. Going up and down on this ladder. Communication between heaven and earth upon the Son of Man. Heaven opened. now what can we learn from this well the first thing we can learn is this thank God for the second man there's a man upon whom heaven is open and by the grace of God every single one of us if we come into him find an open heaven it's opened on him now although i've said that and it's true that every that for every child of god there is an opened heaven in christ we never practically or experimentally know that heaven opened in service until we are prepared to lay down our lives now many of those who want to serve the lord They had this question, why is heaven not open to me? And you know, people all the time try to explain it away and it always injures me in my heart when I hear it. When I hear one of these futile discussions about hearing the voice of God and people say, well, well, don't, don't bother about it, it doesn't really matter. The point is this, every servant of the Lord should hear the Lord's voice. You should hear the Lord's voice. It's no good making excuses about it. Heaven opened means you hear the voice of God. And it's no good just trying to say, oh it's just literature, God speaks to you that way. He could speak to some unsaved professor that way. My sheep hear my voice, they know my voice. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith to the churches. Jesus said it again and again and again. The dead shall hear and shall live. A lot of other people heard and didn't hear. Now, what does that mean? You see, we're all so adept at making excuses because we're frightened, but perhaps we haven't got there. <laughs> but that's not the way to come through. We have to admit and confess our condition before God before we can come through to anything. We should hear the voice of God. Now, I don't mean in sort of uh, in those imaginative ways that some people get... but I do mean that the sign of the anointing is communication the sign of the anointing is communication that man that woman is under direction from heaven now I don't mean getting all spiritualized about this because you'll find that people who really have the anointing are generally the most normal natural people don't dither all the time about whether you should wear this tie or that tie or eat this peas for lunch or not a kind of idea of guidance which is ridiculous and brings the whole thing into disrepute that's not, that's not being under the anointing the anointing is as you see it in Jesus moving through our life and yet with an ear opened to the Spirit of God opened to the Spirit of God well now we could stay here all evening but we mustn't Uh, on just this matter all I would like to say is this that although there is it is true an open heaven for every child of God in Christ experimentally experimentally practically you cannot know that in your... Day-to-day experience, unless you're prepared to give up right to yourself and lay down your life. When that happens, there's an open heaven. You see, it's the old principle again. Heaven will not be opened above any self-life. You can have a saved self-life. But if it's a self-life, heaven stays closed to it. It's an, I'm sorry, you're a Christian, you're saved. One day you'll be in the kingdom, right. You won't lose that. But, and this is the point, this is the point, you are denying the very meaning of your salvation. You are contradicting one of the most essential factors in your your salvation. An opened heaven. Now what does an open heaven mean? I think it means this. The assurance of our acceptance in Christ now I say that word I say that. I use that word advisedly the assurance not the acceptance the assurance of our acceptance in Christ that's the anointing rock like faith you know your foundation you know your acceptance accepted in the well beloved you know it you absolutely know it you may be shaken at times but you know your justification full assurance of faith is what the apostle Paul called it the second thing I would say is that about the open heaven it means not only a full assurance of our acceptance in Christ of our foundation in him but it also means God's committal of himself completely to us in Christ now you remember this God commits himself to very few Christians And that's a terrible thing because it's a denial of our salvation. But you see, most of us are only half saved, to put it rather crudely. We're just only half saved. We are saved, but we've never really accepted the full implications of our our salvation. Of our spiritual birth. God wants to be committed to every one of us because of the finished work of Jesus Christ, because of Calvary, because of Pentecost. He wants to be committed completely. The anointing, the open heaven, is he's committed. Absolutely committed. That's what the open heaven meant. The third thing, means, it means divine communication. Or if you like, union and communion. If you want to put it in a slightly more theological way. Divine communication. God speaks to you, you speak to God, and as the, um, John put it, if we know that he's here, heard us, that's a very interesting way of putting it, if we know that he's heard us, we haven't always got the assurance that we've really got his ear. But when we know that he's heard us, we know it inside. Divine communication. Open heaven now the second thing about this anointing is the spirit descending upon him as a dove Uh, this was a great surprise to me when i discovered that in actual fact um, Christ's baptism is the only occasion in the whole bible when the holy spirit is referred to as manifesting himself as a dove now in luke we won't. Have, in the notes you'll find the, the things you can look it up in Matthew and in Luke and in John Luke goes so far to make absolutely certain that no one thinks it's just a figure of speech he says he, he, came, he descended in bodily form as a dove in bodily form now there's no figure of speech there was something the Holy Spirit manifested himself like a, a dove Now, although we all know that the dove in Scripture is a symbol of the Holy Spirit, this baptism of Christ is the only occasion when the Holy Spirit actually manifested himself like that. Now, surely it's not just meant to symbolise gentleness, harmlessness, or purity. We know that the Lord Jesus said, be as harmless as doves and wise as serpents. But is that what it is meant to symbolise here? Harmlessness, purity, gentleness. If it was, it's perfectly right. But I must say that I find it very hard uh, to believe that the Holy Spirit uh, manifested himself in this form when coming upon Christ just to reveal his gentleness and harmlessness. I think the reason is this. For the poor in the Old Testament days, the dove was the most common sacrifice. And most of us forget this. You see, we, with our Gentile background, and with the, so many centuries afterwards, we read the Bible and we read it there was a, a bullock or a ram or a dove. And we all think, of course, of the bullock as being the thing that you normally use for sacrifice. The word was given that if the person is too poor, they should use a turtle dove. You find that in Leviticus, and uh, chapter um, 1, verse 14 to 17. I'll just read a few verses, chapter 1 of Leviticus, 14. If his oblation to the law be a burnt offering of birds, then he shall offer his oblation of turtle doves or of young pigeons, and the priest shall bring it unto the altar and wring off its head, burn it on the altar, and so on. Chapter 5... Uh, of Leviticus, verse 7. And if his means suffice not for a lamb, then he shall bring his trespass offering for that wherein he hath sinned two turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now, you see, you have to remember that the vast majority of the children of Israel were poor people. They were dirt poor. Therefore, the most common sacrifice you could see in the temple courts was doves. You remember when the Lord cast over the tables and threw over the cages of doves, let them free? It was because most people bought uh, doves and many people, being Jewish, bought doves who could have afforded a lamb Um, because they uh, wanted to economize on their money side. When the Holy Spirit came, he used what was the most commonly known symbol of sacrifice, the dove. Anyone who saw that, if there were those who saw it, other than John the Baptist and, Jesus, uh, and the Lord Jesus, knew exactly what it meant. The dove didn't symbolize just harmlessness in Old Testament days. It supremely symbolized sacrifice now it's often this very aspect of the Holy Spirit's work which is forgotten we think of him coming to us to give power to give authority to bring joy and peace we think of him coming to us to release the life and nature of Christ within us we think of him coming to us to, um, uh, to touch us with glory. Now there is nothing wrong in thinking of this, for this is all part of the work of the Holy Spirit. But you think of this. The supreme thing the Holy Spirit comes for in service is uh, to enable us to sacrifice ourselves. I want to say this, this evening, that if the Holy Spirit can't enable you to really give up right to yourself, there can be no service in your life. You can have all the joy and the peace in the world. You can have even power. I doubt it. You can have anything else but for service. The one thing the Holy Spirit supremely wants is your your ability to lay down your life completely now the whole point here then is that service the principle of of divine service is is not self-ambition self-aggrandizement self-fulfillment self-expression but the principle of divine service is Calvary and it is symbolized in the Holy Spirit descending as a dove joy and peace yes in laying down your life in service I'm talking about now not just for ordinary life you can be a Christian and have your ordinary life and not serve the Lord I'm talking about service Joy and peace. That's why if once you've ever said, if ever those fateful words have have come out of your lips, Lord, I want to be one of your servants. If you've ever said that at any time in your life, the Lord has said, oh, sacrifice. You didn't think of it like that. Again and again, it's the old idea. Self-ambition, I want to be something, I want to be something. I want to get somewhere. The old drive. Or sometimes self-expression, self-fulfillment. I must be doing something, I must fulfill myself. This is no ground for service. People have come to me and said, I must forget myself. It's the old world, you know, join the Red Cross. Women's voluntary service, forget yourself. Do something for others. There's nothing wrong, in the world that's one of the highest forms. But when it's no basis for divine service, divine service is simply this we have to give up right to ourselves we don't fulfill ourselves that's not the that, that's not the objective of ourselves it's not just to express ourselves we let give up right to ourselves we deny ourselves we go out to others now that's what the Holy Spirit coming as a dove just meant comes upon us if we could only know the anointing in this way and the other thing of course is the pleasure of the father uh, in verse 11 where we read that uh, the voice came from heaven my beloved son in thee I am well pleased it was the voice of God and it was the divine attestation of the Lord Jesus Christ as the son of God the unique and only son of God who became the servant of the Lord so again in the first few verses of Mark we've got twice this declaration of Jesus as the son of God in the gospel that supremely speaks of him as the servant of uh, the Lord isn't that interesting but there's something more in that voice now you know as well as I do why did the father need to say that he could have said it quietly in his son's heart don't you think that Jesus had an ear for him He could have just said quietly in his heart these words. What what was really the point of this great cry from heaven? I tell you, it was no exhibition on the part of God. It was the spontaneous cry of divine delight. I wish I could put it over to you because God's a person, you know. He's not a machine, not some great electronic brain. God's a person. He's spontaneous, you know. He repents sometimes. <laughs> he gives great trouble to us. How does God repent? How, did he, how does He say, He repents me of this thing? Or so on. But God's a person. God's a person. He has feelings, in sense, if you know what I mean. And this was the spontaneous cry of divine delight in finding that the Son was manifesting the same character as the Father. Selfless love in sacrificial giving. It was a cry that, I love the way it put it in the Amplified, there came a cry from within, out of heaven. Terrible, isn't it? But the idea was that God on his throne from right within heaven, as it were, just cried out. This is my only son, my beloved son. In Thee I'm delighted! What well, I mean the Lord Jesus knew the Father delighted in Him? The Lord Jesus knew the Father was well pleased with Him? The, the Lord Jesus knew the Father was well satisfied with Him? What's the point? The Father was just... He couldn't contain Himself. It was the first time that someone on earth had manifested a character exactly like God. Exactly like God. Here for the first time was someone who had only been pale, in a very pale way, um, typified in Moses. When he said, block me out but save the people Lord. Or others, just in a very pale way typified or prefigured. But now for the first time he had the Son manifesting as a man, as the servant of the Lord, the Lord's own servant manifesting the same character as himself he couldn't contain himself he said in thee I delight I delight in you I'm satisfied in you I'm well pleased with you we ought to remember that Christ is the only one truly and utterly acceptable to God and in a sense you could say well pleasing he's the only one and we know this acceptance and this divine pleasure and satisfaction when we're in Christ when we share his nature when somehow or other the cross comes into us, when the spirit can release the nature and life of Christ in us so that it's a sacrificial service that comes out well there you are, baptism and anointing baptism and anointing, cross and the spirit Cross and the Spirit. Never get away from it. Never, never, never. So here you have it at the beginning of the Lord's public service. He goes down into the waters of baptism. He accepts the principle of the cross. Heaven opens. The Spirit descends on him like a a dove. And the Father cries out, This is my only beloved Son. my, My beloved, my only Son. A unique son. In thee I delight. Well lastly, in the last two verses, 12 and 13, we have the testing and proving of Christ. The testing and proving of the Lord's servant. Immediately the Holy Spirit drove Christ out into the wilderness to face Satan. Immediately. In his baptism Christ had revealed his determination to fulfill the service God had given him in his anointing he received the power the authority and the resources he needed for that service now in his testing he was to prove his fitness for that service now they literally there's only only be a minute what can we say about this testing here we've got it it was not the devil who drove Christ out into the wilderness it was the Holy Spirit who drove him out and Mark uses a very strong word indeed when he says drove him, driveth him, impelled him out propelled him so it wasn't the devil cornering christ but the holy spirit cornering the devil isn't that marvelous it was as if the holy spirit said now we've got him we've got the first time we've got someone who can overcome the devil we'll go out and meet him you and i can't go out to meet the devil my we're done if we as much as Uh, 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 try to take the devil on lead us not into temptation the Lord taught us to pray but deliver us from the evil one would that more would pray that prayer daily but the Lord Jesus there was no ground for Satan in him at all out he went driven out by the Holy Spirit to meet Satan the second little point I want you to note is this we can't help but note it that Satan was the direct antithesis the exact opposite of all that God meant by service and you'll find that in Isaiah in chapter 14 verse 12 for, I will be like the Most High I will exalt my throne the exact opposite to service he was a servant someone who was made as a messenger of God as a servant of God angels what are they? <laughs> administering spirits serving spirits Here was someone who had his exact opposite. I, I, self-ambition, self-fulfillment, self-aggrandizement, self-centeredness. Here it all is. Who better than he to test Christ's self-life? There was no one better equipped to probe the depths of a latent self-life than the devil he had known what it was to serve God and had gone over. From selfless service to self-centred service. and was cast out. Or if you can call it service. Now although Mark doesn't tell us anything about the temptations we know from Matthew and Luke that they were all to do with that self-life. Bread. Lord, stones here. You hungry? Let's have a miracle. Now the devil devil never denied that Christ couldn't work a miracle nor did he uh, deny the fact that that, uh, he could actually get bread out of a stone. That is a miracle. Of a very first kind. Didn't ever deny it. What he said was, work a miracle for the wrong motive. Ever thought about that? Work a miracle for the wrong motive. And the second thing was, now Lord, you know, come on throw yourself down from the of the (coughs) temple float down cushioned on the arms of angels let everyone stand back in amazement your your public service will start with a bang self and you know the last one bow down to me just just quickly little bob (laughs) nod your head and I'll give you all the authority of the kingdoms of the world (coughs) get it without the cross without all this giving up the right of yourself denying yourself don't have to I'll give it to you now Mark doesn't tell us anything about that all he says is that the Lord Jesus was tempted for 40 days and 40 nights but it was all to do with whether that self life Given up in the waters of baptism. Tested to by the the voice of God from heaven. Anointed by God with the Holy Spirit. Whether that self-life could be stirred into activity. Jesus triumphed. He didn't let that self-life come out once. Not once. By the Spirit his baptism held good. By the Spirit, his baptism held good. No empty gesture, no theory mentally adhered to, no emotional decision quickly taken, that baptism of his. He proved that it was the genuine basis of his service. Well, there's not much more to say except that you notice it says that they were, he was with wild beasts. And this, and angels ministered to him in verse 13 and this heightens the whole sense of loneliness and also severity the severity of them angels ministered to wild beasts and I think also we ought to see in that reference to wild beasts uh, a more than a little suggestion that the last Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. The word with the beast is a very suggestive way of putting it. He wasn't just among wild beasts, but he was with them, as if somehow they had no fear. As if they just simply harmoniously came, like the lions with Daniel, as Brother Oliphant once said, he made one of them a pillow and slept on him the whole night. Uh, Just a a, a sense of absolute harmony between the natural creation and the Lord of creation. Jesus as the servant of the Lord. Now, Adam was put in the garden as the servant of the Lord, but he failed. And his failure meant that animals, a fear later on in Noah's day, a fear of human beings came into all wild, non-domestic. I think there's more than a suggestion here that here the second man, Mm -hmm. the last Adam, the servant of the Lord, succeeded where Adam failed. Well, there we are. Now we're at the beginning of his service. We've We've had the Lord presented to us. Doesn't it shame us? Doesn't it shame us? If he is God the Son, who became man, the servant of the Lord, had to accept the principle of the cross as the basis of his service how much more you and I we need to know the Holy Spirit's ministry Mm -hmm. and it's a kind of cycle really one way you can't really divide it you see you can't know the cross without the spirit (laughs) and you're not safe unless you know the cross. So it's two-sided all the time. Cross and the spirit. Cross and the spirit. the Spirit and the cross. The spirit and the cross. May God help every one of us. We've all got issues in our lives, myself included, where these things go deep. And uh, it would be the most marvellous thing in the world if the anointing could come upon us all in such a way that we really know an open heaven know the ministry of the Holy Spirit truly and safely and no communication few people have on the earth the Spirit of God very, very, very few may God help us and may he do this and if nothing else may he bring in our hearts a recognition of our need whoever we are whatever we are and a true seeking of him to meet us no man no woman can enter into the service of God without the anointing shall we pray dear beloved Lord thou knowest again how whenever we see the Lord Jesus Christ in all his inherent worthiness we have to Lord fall back in one sense Lord we we just oh it just shames us Lord so that we become silent and on the other hand Lord it makes our hearts Sing for joy. Lord, how glad we are that thou hast found someone to whom heaven can open of itself. Someone who is utterly worthy and utterly satisfying to thyself. We do praise thee and we do worship thee. And Lord, we pray that every one of us in this room may be prepared and ready to know the cross that thy Holy Spirit may anoint us for thy service. We ask it in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.